All right. As Jamie said, my name is Josh Kelso, um, one of the pastors here, and it is just a tremendous privilege to get to, to be with you guys this morning and to get to look at God's Word together and see what God's Word has to say, uh, particularly regarding prayer. And prayer can be a really daunting topic. I, I shared a couple years ago at the women's retreat that uh, prayer over the previous years to that was one of the areas where I needed to grow the most in spiritual discipline. And it's one of the areas where I think God has grown me the most as, as well. And then even reflecting in the last two years, I think the Lord keeps giving me opportunities to teach on prayer because he wants to continue to convict me and, and grow me. And I, I really think that prayer is just a discipline that we're never going to graduate from. We're never going to arrive. It's never going to be where we've just got everything together in regards to our prayer life and we can just kind of coast. But it's a discipline, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, the discipline of prayer. The discipline of prayer should really saturate every element of our lives. It's not that, hey, we, we care for our heart, and that's where prayer fits into our lives. Or we care for our families, and that's where prayer fits into our lives. Or we participate in ministry and body life, and that's where prayer fits into our life. Really, prayer should saturate every part of our life. It should reach and extend itself into every part of our life. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the discipline of prayer and how we might cultivate a life of prayer. So as we consider the reality that prayer is a discipline, uh, I doubt that any of you would say something contrary to what I said, that you would say, hey, no, actually, my prayer life has arrived. It's right where I want it to be. Prayer is intimidating. It's a daunting topic. And yet it should be one of the most sweet, precious, intimate, encouraging, emboldening, comforting practices of the Christian life. And at the same time, it can be confusing. It can be challenging. It can be discouraging. What do we pray for? How should we pray? This specific situation, uh, what do I even ask God for in this situation? I don't want to pray wrong. Maybe at times it can feel pointless. It can feel lonely. I've prayed so much and I don't perceive any answers to this prayer. So why do I even keep praying? Has God abandoned me? It can seem ineffective or overwhelming. Sometimes it doesn't seem that God ever actually makes anything happen the way that I ask. We can feel disheartened. I think it's important to consider just how are you viewing prayer in general? Is prayer an add-on? Is it a preliminary to the actual work of the Christian life? If you didn't pray for a day or a week or a month, would you feel it? Would your spiritual life be affected by prayer? The reality is, is that oftentimes prayer is a neglected discipline in the Christian life. John Piper says one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not for a lack of time. Ouch. <laughs> and maybe it's not Twitter or Facebook. Maybe it's Candy Crush. Or maybe it's Netflix. Or maybe it's something else that you find to occupy your time with. And yet when asked or confronted about your prayer life, oh, it's just so hard to find time. The reality is, as hard as it may be to hear, is that time is not the problem with your lack of prayer or my lack of prayer. It's just not the reality. Prayer is a gift from God. And if you're too busy for five minutes a day of prayer, you're too busy for what God created you for, which is fellowship with him 
intimacy with him, relationship with him. Now, before you feel all beat up and, and, and discouraged in regards to your prayer life, it's also important that you understand that, that we're all in this together. You're not alone. Prayer is hard. It's a neglected discipline that we continue to seek to grow in, to seek to grow in. And there is hope for the believer in the gospel because Christ has provided all that we need to be able to approach God in prayer and to be able to come before him and present our requests and and have fellowship with him in prayer. And this morning, what I hope to do is to aid and to help each of you, regardless of where your prayer life is, to be able to grow, to be challenged, and to be sharpened in your prayer life. And so I want to kind of set forth what our plan is for the morning, where we're going to go. We're going to look next at what is prayer and what is its purpose? Why do we pray? So what is prayer and why do we pray? And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage in Colossians, and you should have already looked at it and you're looking ahead homework in Colossians 1, and we're going to just make some observations about prayer. We're going to kind of be a fly on the wall in regards to Paul's prayer for the Colossians, and we're going to make some observations there. Then we'll take a a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some hindrances to a, a disciplined life of prayer, and we're going to talk about some aids to cultivating a disciplined life of prayer, and then we're going to talk about prayer and the wellspring discipline. So prayer in your heart, home, and ministry. That's where we're going this morning. So first, let's look at prayer and its purpose. You have a quote there by John Bunyan, and I found this quote incredibly helpful and incredibly rich. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit, For such things as God has promised, or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission and faith to the will of God. You get your mind around all of that? Me neither. I'm still working on it. (laughs) There's a lot there. It's really rich. It's really rich. And yet it's really accurate. This is what prayer should be about. It should be a sincere, a heartfelt real coming before the Lord with sensibleness. Okay. It's not just an impulsive thing where truth is far from our mind and we're just gushing, not knowing, not stable or anything. Now, listen, sometimes we come to the Lord gushing, not stable. And part of what he uses to help bring us to stability in him is that time of prayer as we're reflecting on truth. But that's what we're aspiring for. We shouldn't have a regular practice of prayer that lacks sensibility. But sometimes God's means of bringing us into sensibility is humble prayer. You understand that? So what we should aspire for is that we would be sincere, sensible, affectionate. This is our Savior. This is our God. This is the one who sent his Son so that we might be reconciled to him. This is the one who punished his son so that we might have fellowship for him. How could we not go with the heart of affection and love and thanksgiving? As we pour out our heart or our soul to God through Christ in the strength strength and the assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised. And this is really helpful. The predominant theme of our prayers should be what God has said he is or will do in us. That should be the predominant theme of what we pray for. It is the things that God has promised. Things according to his word. 
and then also for the good of the church. And this is really precious for the believer because we are part of the church. And so every time we pray, we should have a corporate element in our hearts and our minds that the bride of Christ would be built up. And you can't pray for the church if you're a Christian and not be praying for yourself as well because you're part of it. And you can't be praying for yourself and not have it impact the church because you're part of the church. But there should be a heart disposition where you're concerned about more than just yourself. You're concerned about the bride of Christ. And this is overall themes in our prayer, right? Not every prayer has to be, pray that I would be holy. I mean, pray that the church would be holy. No, we, we pray intimately. We, we fellowship with God. But it's important to understand that there's a corporate element to what's going on when we pray. And there's a desire for Christ's bride to be built up as we make petitions. And all of this must be done with submission in faith to the will of God. You should never come to God with a desire for God to prove himself to you. Right? Have you ever met someone where you're sharing the gospel with them or you're trying to evangelize them and they say, well, if God would just do this, then I would believe. Well, ultimately what that person is saying is if God would just be my servant, if God would allow me to be his master, then I'll submit to him as my master? Well, right from the start, your heart is one of lording yourself over God where he has to prove himself to you as opposed to humbly submitting oneself under God's will, under his plan, under his might, under his purposes. And so it is for our prayers. We should never come to God lording ourselves over him, but rather humbling ourselves under him, seeking his will, his plan, his purpose first. And so what is prayer? Prayer is a humble fellowship, intimate interaction with our Savior upon which we present our requests to God, trusting in his sovereign plan and will. And this is how he desires his people to interact with him in prayer, in fellowship, in worship. And it's always for the purpose of his glory. And that's what we're talking about now is not only the what is prayer, but the purpose of prayer. It's the, the ultimate purpose of prayer is the glory of God. And we see that in John fourteen thirteen, where Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why? So whatever you pray in Jesus name that he will do. Why? So that the father may be glorified in the son. God and his son, they are interested, the triune God is interested in our prayers so that he might answer those prayers so that God might receive glory. So that God might receive glory. The ultimate purpose of every Christian is to give glory and honor to God. And the purpose of prayer isn't somewhere separate from that. It's in alignment with that. The purpose of prayer is ultimately to bring glory and honor to God. And this is helpful in in thinking through our prayer life when we think about what to pray or how to pray is that, oh my goodness, this is an opportunity for me to give glory to God. And it's sobering because, listen, if your prayer life is lacking or your prayer life is misinformed, you're not praying the ways that God desires, you're actually missing out on opportunities to glorify God. And conversely, if your prayer life is excelling, and your prayer life is according to God's will and God's word, well, you, that's, a, that's a unique opportunity to give glory to God, which is precious and sweet. And, and I hope that that reality doesn't scare you away from praying 
oh my goodness, if I pray wrong, I'm not going to give glory to God. I understand that that can be intimidating. Don't let that lead you away from prayer. Let that lead you into God's word and into humble, contrite, worshipful, reverent, fearful prayer and fellowship with your Savior. Because how sweet is it that at the cost of his own blood son, God has paved a way for us to have fellowship with him. That is so sweet. And that is so precious. And that is a unique opportunity for us to be able to interact with God. And as we consider this practice and this discipline of prayer, I I hope that it's not discouraging or burdensome for you. Oh man, prayer, great. Another thing I have to do. I've got all these, I I finally just started reading my Bible in the morning and now I've got to work something else into my schedule and something else into my time or else I'm not going to give glory to God. Well, that's not how we should think about prayer at all. In fact, in 1 John 5, we find that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. The commandments of the Lord aren't burdensome and we are instructed to pray. We are told we must pray. We Christians are praying people. And so if something is burdensome about the discipline of prayer, It's not because the instruction itself is burdensome. It's because there's something in our hearts or our thinking that is wrong. Prayer is a precious gift from God in which we get to fellowship with our Savior. Where we get to humble ourselves under him. We get to entrust ourselves to him. We get to humbly and transparently pour our out our heart and where we're at what our struggles are he knows them and he wants us to bring them to him he wants to tend to us in our weaknesses he wants to care for us in our affliction he wants to encourage us in our trials and our struggles he wants to strengthen us in our faith he wants us to to embolden us in our practice of living for his name so prayer it's a, it's a sensible, affectionate, coming before the Lord, aligning yourself with his will, humbly presenting your requests to him, trusting in his greatness. And it's for the glory of God. But listen, there's other implications of prayer on the Christian life than giving glory to God, which as if giving glory to God weren't enough. It's also a way for us to cultivate fellowship and relationship with him, to deepen our worship of him and to grow in our thinking and our maturity about him and for him. Next, what we're going to do, we're going to transition into a model of prayer. And what I hope that this does for you is just gives you some things to think about in regards to your prayer life. What kinds of things do you thank God for? What kinds of things do you ask God for? Do you feel lost in that? Man, I sit down to pray and I don't know where to start. Or I find myself just kind of wandering or drifting and then I get distracted and I'm all of a sudden I'm thinking about this other thing over here and then I go, oh, oh yeah. And then I come back and I start praying again. Or, or maybe the extent of your prayer life is well wishes. Somebody shares a prayer request, oh, I'll be praying for you. And the extent of that is you wish them well. That's not prayer. Prayer is not well wishes. It's fellowship with your Savior. It's presenting petitions. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a model of prayer. And this is something just to maybe get our minds churning and maybe even stir in our hearts some some desires about what we should long for and what we should bring to the Lord in prayer. We're going to do that from Colossians chapter one. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, and Paul really has his prayer broken into two parts here. We see the first where Paul gives thanksgiving, and this is Paul just thanking God for a number of different things in the believers in Colossae. And then he moves into his petitions, and we see a number of things that he prays for the believers in Colossae. And so first we're going to start with Paul's thanksgiving, and we see that in verses 3 through 8. Let's read those verses to start, starting in verse three of chapter one of Colossians. Paul says, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just just as in all the world also It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is faithful, is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Now, as we look at the things that Paul gives thanks for in regards to the Colossians, it's important to understand everything that is worthy of praise or that is good only comes from God. And so God is the one Paul gives thanks to. If anything good comes from you or comes from me, it is because God put it there. And so as we give thanks to God, this should have a humbling effect on us. Anything that is praiseworthy is ultimately from God, and he is the one with whom we should ultimately give praise. That's why we talk about evidences of grace in one another. I don't know if you've heard that as the kind of language that we use at Grace Bible Church at various times in different contexts, because we're acknowledging we want to encourage one another, right? We're we're actually commanded to encourage one another. But one of the best ways that we can encourage one another is not by saying, hey, look what you did. You did such a great job. I don't know where we would be without you. Rather, look at what God is doing in you. That is the grace of God in you. If God were not working this way in you, our church wouldn't be what it is. My life wouldn't be what it is. And that's an evidence of God's grace working in and through you. And so I encourage you while keeping you humble because you realize, oh yeah, that is only God's grace. And yet you're encouraged because God's working in you. And that's how it should be. Anything that is praiseworthy is from the Lord. And so Paul here sees things that are praiseworthy in the Colossians, and he gives thanks to God for those things. So first, what do we see here? The first thing in which Paul gives thanks for is their faith in Jesus. And that's your first blank there. Under Paul's thanksgiving, and then number one, it's their faith in Jesus. Jesus is the first blank in your outline. And we see that in the first half of verse four. Look at that again. Since we heard of your faith, he gives thanks to God since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is where the gospel starts. 
It's faith in Jesus. The believers in Colossae had faith and this faith was in Christ. And in order to have the gospel in your life, you have to have faith and you have to have faith in the right object. And the only right object is Christ himself. You could have faith in something or someone and have the strongest faith and that faith won't save you because it is not in the right person. And it is better to have small faith in Jesus than the biggest faith possible in the wrong person or thing. Because you have no gospel if you have no Jesus. And your faith is nothing if it's not in Jesus. And so Paul sees that these are true believers, that they love Christ, that they know Jesus. And he gives thanks, he gives thanks for that faith in Christ that they have. And this shows that any faith that one has in Jesus is because of God. It's a gift of God. It's an evidence of God working in them. And this is a great starting point because, listen, at times in the body of Christ, it is hard to maintain sweet fellowship with every person, right? There are some relationships that are harder than others. There are conflicts in the church that are sought out to be resolved. But for the Christian... There is always something for which to give God thanks for in another believer. You can always give thanks to God for another Christian because God has granted to them faith. And if they indeed love Christ, you can thank God for them and the faith that he has granted to them. There is always something to pray for another Christian and to thank God for. And this is helpful in just resolving conflicts within the church because there's, there's a, a tenderizing effect that praying to God for another individual and actually thanking God for another, under, in, for another individual has on your heart. If you're praying for a believer, there's always something for which to give thanks. So first, Paul gives thanks for their faith in Jesus. And next, he flows right out of this into really the first evidence that flows from a believer's heart. And that is love for the saints. So your second blank is saints. First, Paul thanks God for their faith in Jesus. And next, he thanks God for their love for the saints. This is the next manifestation of the gospel working itself out in the Colossians life. There are results of genuine faith in the believer's life and faith in Jesus produces specific things and the gospel takes effect in someone's heart by the gift of faith from God. But one of the first things that faith in Jesus produces is love for the saints, love for others. And this is evident in the believers of Colossians. Jesus in John 13, 34, 35 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, a predominant characteristic of the Christian is love for others. And this is evident in the Colossians. And Paul gives thanks for this in the Colossians lives. This is an important characteristic for the Christian because one of the greatest ways that you can guard yourself from sin is by cultivating love for others. If you struggle with anger towards others, you're going to have a lot more hope to grow in holiness if you do not simply tell yourself, I need to stop being angry. Rather, if you tell yourself, I need to cultivate a heart of love, you will have much better opportunity to overcome that sin of anger. 
It's not only what you're putting off as a believer, but it's what God has called you to put on. And a predominant characteristic of what the believers are to be about is love for one another. And so as you cultivate love for others, selfishness, greed, covetousness, anger, bitterness, discontentment, all of these things can be set aside by love for others above yourself, by considering others' needs above your own needs. This person isn't, isn't caring for me the way that I want. Really? Have you thought about how you can love them and what that might do to your heart? This person is so hard to be around. Really? What expectations have you set up in your heart for what they must be that they're not meeting? Rather, have you considered setting expectations and aligning your expectations for yourself with God's expectations and being that for them? Why do they always get to do this? Why doesn't anybody ever ask me to do this? Really? Why not thank God for his work in their life and the benefit that they're bringing to the body of Christ? Love for others can help you in your pursuit of holiness, and it's helping the Colossians as they're seeking to glorify and honor God, and it's a predominant thing in which Paul gives thanks for in them. And it's also important to notice that they have a love for all the saints, not some of the saints. We don't get to pick and choose those whom we love in the body of Christ. There weren't some believers they loved and some believers they considered as more important than themselves and some believers they deferred their preferences to and then others, well, no, not, not them. There was a love for all the saints. Indiscriminatory love for the believers. And Paul gives thanks for that. Next, number three, we see their hope in heaven. Paul gives thanks for their hope in heaven. That's your third blank is heaven. The believers in Colossae had a hope in heaven. And we see that in verse five. Look at verse five. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Believers have a special hope. A hope that is worthy of thanking God for. There is a hope laid up for believers or reserved or in store in heaven. A Christian can endure hardship. A Christian can endure persecution, can persevere through trial, can press on in tragedy. All because Christians have a hope beyond this world. Something outside of ourselves. A hope, an otherworldly hope as Smedley Yates would say. We have a hope in the work of Christ, which is given to us a hope of eternity in heaven. And this radically impacts the way that we live on this earth. If we are not only consumed by the here and now, if everything doesn't hinge on this moment, we have much greater opportunity to be pleasing to the Lord as we press on looking at what lies ahead, which is the eternal hope of heaven. And that's why Paul could say that the, the sufferings and the hardship of this world are yet but momentary light affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Hard relationship in this life? That's nothing to the intimate relationship, fellowship that we have with our Savior for all eternity. I can endure. I can press on. I can be holy. I could be what God has called me to be. Moses is a perfect example of this. Turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews. 
Hebrews 11, starting in verse 24, says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There, Moses is willing to endure the hardship of this earth. He set aside the treasures and the pleasures of this world that he might take on the reproaches of Christ, that, that he would be obedient to Christ at whatever the earthly cost. Why? Because he was looking ahead to the reward, the hope of heaven. There is a reward for believers. There is a hope of heaven. There is an eternal fellowship where there's no more hardship, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sin, no more trials, only good of God all the time in perfect fellowship and harmony with him. And this is what all believers should be aspiring to, to continually fortify themselves in their hope of heaven. And this is something that is evident in the Colossians for which Paul gives thanks to God and then number four the next blank the next thing for which paul gives thanks to god is their growth in fruit the colossians growth in fruit fruit that's your next blank there under number four look at verse six this gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit the gospel's bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing. And you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Here we see that the gospel produces fruit, both in personal transformation of individuals and in corporate growth of the church. More disciples growing more disciples. And the gospel not only saves individuals, but it changes their life and produces fruit. Paul here is looking for evidence of the gospel playing itself out in the believers in Colossians, and he can see it. He can see that there's fruit in their lives, that they're growing in holiness, and that the gospel keeps pressing forward as a result of their obedience to Christ. There is growth in fruit. And then lastly, we see number five, authentication from leaders. And this one is really interesting. This I thought was really compelling and probably out of all of these impacted my prayer life the most. Authentication from leaders. Number five, your blank is leaders. And look at verses 7 and 8 again. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow bonds, our, our beloved fellow slave or bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. They had sent Epaphras to Colossae to minister on behalf of Paul. And Epaphras was caring for and discipling and pastoring the believers there. And then in verse 8, we see, and he, that's Epaphras, also informed us of your love in the spirit. Now salvation is only by grace and it is ultimately only a work of God. Yet God uses humans as channels of that grace. And Epaphras brought the good news of the gospel to the Colossians. They learned it from him. He was their mentor in the faith. And Paul's representative and fellow slave of Christ. He was a faithful leader. And he testified to the Colossians love in the spirit. He was near to them, and the Colossians' leader authenticated their faith. He didn't give to them faith. He didn't say, hey, you should not be sure about your faith until I say you have it. But rather, what he did was he testified of it. He authenticated. He put his stamp of, hey, what they're saying they believe, I'm watching them live it out, and it seems to be true. 
He assessed their faith as genuine. And this is definitely something that the gospel produces and something to give thanks God to give thanks to God for. And in order to have authentication from your leaders, here's the reality. You need to have leaders in your life. And here we just see implied that there's not a category for rogue Christians. I love Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. And yeah, church is for some people, but I'm over here and I'm going to do my own thing. And, you know, the moment somebody starts to speak into my life, how dare they place themselves in authority over me? God has a design for his people. And it's that every single one is under authority. Ultimately, God's authority, but he has authority structure under that. Elders, husbands, wives, children, and so forth. We're all under authority. As an elder of this church, I am not only under the authority of God. I am under his authority, but I am a sheep as an elder. And I'm under the authority of my elders. My life is submitted to them. My ministry is submitted to them. There is no category, no category Not even elders are rogue Christians dictating their own lives apart from human authority over them. And so consider this in your participation in the body of Christ. Consider this in your participation in this church. We just looked at five things in which Paul gives thanks to God for in regards to the Colossians. Do you have people in your life who could testify to these types of things in you? Do you have leaders in your life? Have you submitted your life to others to be able to speak to the areas where God is working and give thanks to God for those things and be able to speak to? Have you opened up the door to allow others over you to speak to the areas where you're struggling, where there's sin? Have you placed contingencies? Have you placed unbiblical expectations? Before I'll be transparent and before I'll let somebody talk to me about the sin in my life, we need to build a relationship. And not a, not a Christian biblical relationship. We need to get to know each other. Our relationship needs to look like the relationships in the world before I'll let us enter into this really intimate thing in regards to my sin and my personal holiness. That's not God's design. We should desire far more personal holiness, personal obedience to Christ, then self-preservation in our struggles. That somebody might speak poorly. Listen, we all sin. And if somebody speaks to sin in your life, that shouldn't be jarring or shocking because we're all there. We all need people to speak into our lives regarding the sin. And that's hard. And I, I don't want to minimize the reality that that is an incredibly vulnerable place to put yourself. And that is easy to say outwardly and hard to do practically. But God doesn't only call us to do easy things. He calls us to do hard things. And here's the reality. Whatever vulnerability you feel is a lack of faith in the faithfulness of God, that he's trustworthy. And while humans around you may fail you and may hurt you and may not use the things that you pour your heart out to them the way that you would desire, God will never fail you. And this is his design. And so ultimately, it's a trust in God. At this church... Okay, one another's are biblically mandated. At this church, how we have sought to intentionally go after the one another's on a regular basis is in the ministry of small groups. Don't hear me wrong. Small groups are not a biblical mandate. 
you are not commanded thou shalt attend a small group. Okay, you are instructed in regards to the one another's. Pray for one another, encourage one another, confess sins to one another, spur each other on, and so forth. Be at peace with one another, be hospitable with one another. All these other one another instructions. The ways that we have sought to go after the one another commands that are not ideally done on a corporate Sunday morning worship service. There's some that are done really well on a Sunday morning corporate worship service, but that doesn't cover the entirety of what scripture calls our lives to be like. And those ones that aren't covered, we seek at Grace Bible Church to go after those in our small group ministry. And so as you consider that, think about what a lack of participation in small group ministry might do to your ability to thank God for these types of things in others, or to have others be able to thank God for these types of things in you. Or if you have committed to a small group, but life's really busy and it gets hard and things come up and we can't commit. And so, yeah, I might get there once every other month. What does that do to those around you's ability to be able to speak to the authentication of your love in the spirit? Now, is there a category at this church for a faithful believer who we can testify to these types of things, who we can thank God, who's plugged in, who's serving and thriving in this church and is not a part of a small group. We have a category for that. But that's not our ideal. That's not how we've set up our church to go after these one another's. Your elders have intentionally sought to cultivate this type of relationship and fellowship and interaction with one another to ideally be cultivated through small group involvement. Okay. Enough on small groups. I oversee small groups, so that's my little plug. Okay. (laughs) All right. And listen, if you have any questions about small group, hey, what what about this? What if I'm doing this but not in a small group? How would that work? Or my schedule is set up this way and I can't be in a small group. I would love to talk with you. Don't simply resolve to say, well, small group isn't practically achievable, and so I'm just going to limit my participation to the body of Christ to Sunday mornings and wellspring, and that's it. Let's talk. Let's talk about intentional ways to go after these types of things, to to pour out yourself in love and service of others in intentional ways um, so that we can be obedient to the one another's in Scripture. And we'd love to, I'd love to help you think through that more. All right. Lastly, kind of the closing. This is an observation. We're just making observations regarding Paul, but I think it's good to ask ourselves, could someone pray this prayer giving thanks to God about you? Could somebody do that? Do you think about these types of things in your prayers for others? What things do you thank God for most? Do you thank God for these types of things? Could others thank God and praise God for these things in you? And as you consider your prayer life, I encourage you to consider these things that Paul thanks God for. You can both pray that God would produce these things in you if you're looking for a starting point in regards to praying. Okay, I really want to grow in prayer. Where should I start? Take this list. And just start praying these things for yourself and then start praying these things for those around you. Thanking God for these things. Pray that God would grant these things in you, that he would increase your faith in Christ. Um, That he would help you to be able to, what are the other ones? Have a hope in heaven, to grow in fruit, to have authentication from leaders, to have a genuine love for one another and so on. Pray that God would grant those things to you and then thank God for those things and look for those things in others around you. All right, now we're going to transition to Paul's petitions, and we're going to move a little bit quicker here. We see Paul's petitions. Paul sets forth four components of his prayer for the Colossians. 
I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. So back in Colossians 1, starting up again in verse 9, Paul says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul now transitions into giving petitions to God on behalf of the Colossians, and here are the things that he prays for. He starts with their thinking, and that's in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He's praying for their thinking. We see that in the words knowledge, wisdom, understanding. These are all thinking words. And when he calls them to be filled, when he when he's praying to God that they would be filled, this is the idea of a wind filling the sail on a sailboat and moving that boat along. That's what he's wanting. He's wanting them to be filled up like the sail on a sailboat with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding so that they might be moved forward in their faith and in their obedience to God. We need to know God's truth. We need to know how to apply God's word. We need to know what to do, why to do it, and how to do it. And we see all of these things given to us in Scripture. By the working of the Holy Spirit, taking that scripture and helping us to understand it rightly and how to live in light of it. And this is really to fight what you feel with what you know. This is that God would fortify us in our faith, in our thinking, in our understanding of his will, so that when the struggles of life hit and we might be swayed back and forth within our fickle emotions, we would be stayed on truth so that we might press on in holiness. It's an anchor for our heart to that which is true and right and good before God. He prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom. And the primary way that we know what God's will is, is in his word. I was just talking with someone the other day about various hard decisions to make. We were actually talking about the purchase of the building next door. And I was sharing how God had been working in my heart in regards to that decision. And one of the things that I've been considering and praying is far more than the indecision of the end decision of whether or not we buy the, the building next door is how we as a church come about making that decision. Because listen, I think there's a way to buy that building next door and do it in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And there's a way to buy that building next door and do it in a way that's displeasing to the Lord. And really the, the main uh, will of God that needs to be unfolded in our lives is not if we buy the building or not. But what is our heart's disposition before God as we move forward seeking to please him in this process? You know what? I can trust him with the outcome of whether or not we buy the building but I want to be pleasing to my Lord. I want to have right thinking. I want to be able to know his will. And he may not have revealed in his word if we should buy that building. But you know what? He's revealed the kind of man that I need to be before him as I step forward in faith, trying to be, please him in that process. So our thinking, fighting what we feel with, we know, with what we know, buoying, buoying our heart on God's word, understanding his will as revealed in scripture that we might be able to live in light of that. And next we see him pray for their decisions. And this really flows out of that right thinking. 
It flows out of that right thinking, and that's number two, their decisions. Why does he pray for them in regards to their knowledge and wisdom and understanding? It's so that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they would make good decisions, that they would please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul prays that they would make the right decision and the best decision in every way. The decision that will bring about the most glory to God and the most spiritual good in every choice. What a great way to pray. What a high call for the way that we should pray. This isn't living in a way that you're good enough to make the cut. It's living in response to the fact that God has made the cut in Jesus and you want to walk in response to what he has done. And you want to now please him, not to keep yourself right with him, but in response to what Christ has done to bring you into fellowship. And so I want to walk in a way that is pleasing to him in all respects. And this takes the decision making from why can't I do this? Why can't I not do this? To God, what would please you most in this? It's, it's no longer to be content to simply say, help me not sin in this. Although that's a good prayer. But an additional prayer that would fortify that prayer all the more is God, help me not to sin in this and help me to please you in every regard as I seek to do what is right. Their decisions. Next he prays for their steadfastness. Look at verse 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness. That's number three. That's the third <coughs> petition that Paul makes. Steadfastness. That's to remain under a difficult circumstance. It's patience, emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. It's to stay with it, to not give up, to be steadfast. And listen, you don't need to be steadfast or you don't need to endure, you don't need endurance if it's easy. There's a sobering reality intertwined within this prayer, and that's that life is hard and that trials come and steadfastness is called upon for the believer to remain under a difficult circumstance. Paul isn't praying, keep them from every trial. He isn't praying, keep them from every hardship. He's praying for steadfastness because trials and hardship are coming. In fact, for the believer... We're told the world will hate us. Trials will come. We live in a fallen world. And we need steadfastness. That's patience or emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances. <coughs> Again, what a, weak, well, what a sweet way to pray before the Lord. God, as various trials, as this trials in my life right now, help me to have an emotional quietness in the face of my unfavorable circumstances, that I would trust you, be stable, and be pleasing to you. That I would stay with it, that I wouldn't give up, that I would persevere, that I would bring glory and honor to you when I can't make sense of my circumstances in this world, when I can't make sense of the things going on around me, when I can't make sense of the things going on in me. Help me to trust you and to stay fixed on you and to be faithful to you. And then lastly, he prays, and I didn't know exactly how to summarize this. I summarized it as their worldview. We see that in verses 12, starting at the very end of verse 13, or, uh, 11. He says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance and the saints of life. And really, as we're seeking to have right thinking and to make right decisions and to be steadfast, 
what he comes to is the gospel, that we would think rightly about our place in this world, that we would think rightly about what God has done in the gospel, that we would joyously give thanks to God regardless of what's going on because we see that he has qualified us. We didn't qualify ourselves. He qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. And then he bursts forth into this beautiful explanation of the gospel for he rescued us. We were a rescue mission. Have you ever thought, hey, I'm not a project. Listen, you're God's rescue mission. He rescued you. You needed it. I needed it. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Paul is praying really that they would give thanks and praise God for what he has done for them in the gospel. And that that would be an umbrella that casts a shadow upon who they are and how they live in this world. He prays for their worldview. That they wouldn't simply just think about the comings and goings and the trials and hardships of this world apart from thinking about what God has done in qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints because of his great sacrifice in the gospel. This isn't it. As bad and as hard as it may get on this earth, Paul compares this as nothing momentary, as I said before, light affliction. This is his worldview in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, a worldview that's fixed on something beyond this world. Now, this is a pattern of prayer, and hopefully this is helpful in thinking through some things to pray about, some things to thank God for, some things to pursue, some things to pray for in others. But here's the reality. Prayer is a hard discipline to do it all. And there are snares and there are hindrances to our prayer life. In fact, a life lacking prayer most likely means that some of these hindrances that we're going to talk about in a few moments have already crept in and ensnared you. And so it's helpful to recognize these potential snares. And that's where we're going to pick up in just a moment. We're going to be looking at hindrances to a life of prayer. And it's helpful just to know what to be on guard against. And obviously, these aren't all of the hindrances to our our life of prayer. But these are maybe some key ones, some predominant ones that seem to come out in most and some helpful things to just be aware of and be on guard of, right? If you know where the snares are, you can be more likely uh, equipped, more better equipped to avoid those snares. If If there's snares out there, hindrances or challenges, and you simply don't know what they are or where they are, you might just unintentionally fall into them, right? So it's helpful just to consider some things in regards to a life dependent on prayer and some potential pitfalls or or hindrances or snares that we could fall into. And the first one, so this is under three, uh, Roman numeral three on your outline, hindrances to a life of prayer, letter A. The first one is this, lack of belief. Your blank is belief there. Lack of belief or faith. If you had faith, it still counts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's right. I saw you going, oh, <laughs> belief, faith. It, here we see that prayer is an act of faith. It really should be. We should come to the Lord in faith. Anytime we, we pray, it's an act of faith. And if we are lacking prayer in our life, it's a lack of belief of some sort. And, and what are some of the things that we must believe? What are we called to believe in our prayer? Well, we must believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. 
a potential pitfall to a life dependent of prayer is simply a lack of belief in God. We are called to believe that God rewards those who seek him. We also, number two, must believe that God is there and he's interested in your prayers. In James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God desires his people to be near to them, to him. He wants to be near to them. And we must understand that his answer may not be what or when or how you expect it, but his ways are best. His ways are best. Listen, prayer is a hard thing because we come to God, we pour out our heart, we're vulnerable before him, we present his requests, and sometimes his answer is no. And we have to believe that his way is best. Otherwise, we'll immediately grow disheartened the first time he says no, or the second time, or third or fourth, and so then we abandon the practice because it's not producing what we desire. And that goes back to the first thing we talked about, where prayer is a humble surrender unto Christ. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a few moments. But ultimately, a potential snare for or hindrance to a life of prayer is a life where you lack belief. You lack faith in God. You lack trust in God. And if your life is faltering in regards to prayer, you should do some personal inventory and evaluation. Where am I not believing God? Where am I not trusting God? Where am I not having faith in God? Where am I thinking that I don't need God? So the first is a lack of belief. Next, letter B, is a lack of persistence. A lack of persistence. That's your second blank there. First we had lack of belief. Now we're under lack of persistence. We are used to immediate responses in day-to-day life. For example, if you post something on Facebook... How frequently and how quickly do you, do you go back to see when someone has liked it or hearted it or wowed it or been angry because of it or sad or commented? How quickly do you go back to those things? We're used to immediate responses. I posted this three minutes ago and nobody's commented yet. This is really interesting. What is wrong with them? We're used to immediate responses to -to day-to-day life. And sometimes our prayers before God is far more about what he's seeking to do in us than what we're asking him to do for us. He wants to do things in us, and we need to have persistence. We need to be faithful. We need to be patient. Prayer is not a consumer sport. Where we come to God and we get, 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 and he just meets all of our needs and all of our desires and all of what we want. Ultimately, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. But that doesn't mean he, just, he, he grants to you all of your requests. Unless all of your requests are scripture, and then you're in good shape. Because <laughs> he'll be faithful to that. Also, we lack persistence. Not receiving immediate responses gives us a long-term need in which to be prayerful over. And that's a good thing. If God is withholding a direct answer from a prayer and the result of that is that you continue in faithful humble prayer what a sweet care from god for you to keep you near to him to keep you near from near to him god draws us to himself in regular communion through our needs over which we pray continually if we navigate this life thinking we can do it all on our own our prayer life is going to be radically lacking versus if we recognize how much we truly need God at every turn. And so we persistently, continually come to him presenting those needs. God, I need you for every breath. 
We, we take every beat of our heart and every breath of our lungs for granted. The reality is we need him for all of those things. He is sustaining all things. He is holding all things in place by his power. Christ is. We need him. And then number two, under Roman numeral two, under lack of persistence, hopefully you're with me. At times, God does not give us what we ask because we will spend it on ourselves. And there's a reality where sometimes we need to see an answer of no over a period of time to reveal things about our heart that are wrong in what we're asking for and why. And if he granted that, re- that, that resource or that thing to us, then we wouldn't have the opportunity to see where our, where our prayers might be lacking. For example, God, give me a new job where I can provide better. Well, if that's rooted out of a heart that wants to have security in things and comfort in things uh, separate from a dependency upon God, maybe him not giving you new, a new job is his kindness to you to help reveal the idolatry of your heart in wanting to find comfort and security in something other than God. And so he withholds that new job from you for a period of time, a period of time until you realize, oh, you know what? I think, I think I'm actually asking this out of selfishness. And if God had granted that to me, that actually would have granted something that would have pulled me farther away from God. And that's not what I want. I just want to be pleasing to God in all respects. And I know that he's going to give me everything that I need and, and all of my you know, clothes and housing will be covered by the Lord. I know he's going to be faithful to that. So I'll just trust him. God, give me a job where I can please you most. And then you get a new job with a raise. That doesn't always happen that way, but God might be withholding something because he knows that if he were to grant it to us, we would spend it on ourselves for our own pleasures. So hindrances or potential snares include a lack of belief, a lack of persistence, of faithfulness in our prayers. And letter C Next, we see a lack of preparedness. And this is a huge one. I know for me personally, one of the greatest hindrances to a disciplined life of prayer is simply a lack of preparedness in my prayer life. John Piper in the book Desiring God says, unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation, you don't just get up one summer morning and say, hey, let's go today. You won't have anything ready. You won't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. But that is how many of us treat prayer. We get up day after day and realize that significant times of prayer should be a part of our life, but nothing's ever ready. We don't know where to go. Nothing has been planned, no time, no place, no procedure. And we all know that the opposite of planning is not a wonderful flow of deep, spontaneous experiences of prayer. The opposite of planning is the rut. If you don't plan a vacation, you'll probably stay home and watch TV. The neutral, unplanned flow of spiritual life sinks to the lowest ebb of vitality. There is a race to be run and a fight to be fought. If you want renewal in your life of prayer, you must plan to see it. That is highly convicting. And one of the greatest aids for my life of prayer personally was when I sat down and made a card 
laminated it and planned out every aspect of my prayer. I'm going to pray this passage on this day. I'm going to pray this chapter on this day. I'm going to pray this chapter on this day and this chapter on this day. And that's what I'm going to do for the next month. And then after that, I'm going to pray for these people every day, my family and an immediate family every day. I'm going to pray for these elders on this day. I'm going to pray for these elders on this day. I'm going to pray for these elders on this day. I'm going to pray for these people in my small group on this day and these people in my small group on this day. And I'm going to pray for these missionaries on this day. And some I pray for every day and some I pray for a couple times a week and some I pray for once a week, but I have a rotation and I have a card laminated that I keep in my Bible or in my, in my bag, just at my desk. And I can pull it out. It's about this big and it's my quick reference for my prayer. And then when I see that, I pull out my phone and I've got Evernote where I keep prayer requests and things like that. And I have specific plans for who I'm going to pray for, when I'm going to pray and how I'm going to pray. And it all starts for me personally, praying through a chapter of scripture or a section of scripture. And that's what I've done. And that was really one of the greatest aids for boosting my prayer life was simply planning to pray. So that when I sat down, I I had a class early on in in GBI in seminary where the requirement for the class was primarily to pray for an hour a day. And I thought, an hour a day (laughs) of just uh, undivided attention towards prayer well, at the first time I sat down, I'm like, oh, what am I going to pray for? And my mind was wandering, and all of a sudden I'm thinking about basketball, and then I'm like, wait, no, got to reel it in here. And then I'm thinking about fishing, and oh, no, I did it again, reel it in. And that's really where that whole idea, okay, I'm, I was reading a call to Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson, and he's talking about having a plan to prayer, and that's where I came up with that note card and implemented that. And within a f- few short days, I was having a hard time ending after an hour. Um, that was just incredibly, incredibly sweet and helpful. So having a plan, making it a priority. Listen, distractions abound. New dynamics are thrown at you every day. It's harder now than ever. I think we feel at times because of the pace of this life and the things that are constantly vying for our attention. But the reality is, is it's not technology that's the problem. It's not hobbies that are the problem. The problem is our heart. There's still 24 hours in a day. There's no excuse that's valid. We need to make it a priority. We need to have a plan to pray. We need to have a plan to be intentional about our meditation on the word of God with the Lord. So we have to create a plan and make it a priority for our prayer life. That is an incredible aid as well as a potential hindrance. A hindrance is not making a plan. A lack of preparedness and an aid would be making a plan. So let's transition into that a little bit more. Let's look at some more aids to a life of dependent of on prayer. Well, the first one is, is letter A, and that's a readiness. That's just a heart disposition where you're ready to pray. So we're under Roman numeral four, aids to a life dependent of on prayer. The first one is readiness. There's no blank on letter A. It's there for you. Readiness. And this is the idea we see in Ephesians 6.18, the, the praying at all times in the spirit. There's a great readiness implied to be able to pray. And it seems that we are often more ready to talk about praying for others than actually praying for others. This is the idea that I mentioned earlier. Oh, I'm going through this, this and this right now. Oh, I'll be praying for you. And then you walk away. What you really said, oh, I wish you well in this moment. But, the, but there may not actually be a readiness to pray. Stop and pray for one another. Let me pray for you right now. Can I pray with you? Have you ever gotten a call? I'm struggling with this and I don't know what to do. And it's really, really hard. You kind of give counsel and you, hey, I want to encourage you with this. Okay, I'll be praying for you. Okay, got to go by. Just take time and pray in that moment for your dear friend. Be ready to pray at all times. Have on your heart and your disposition a readiness to beseech God 
and, and a thoughtfulness and a willingness to do so at any moment when you're struggling. The discipline of prayer must be an isolated time of just you and God, but it should not be exclusively that. It should be intertwined throughout your day as you're living for God's glory and you're communicating and recognizing your, your need in every moment. You're just ready to pray. And when things go really, really well, you, you give thanks to God and you thank him for those things. And when things start to get really hard or you see things ugly about yourself starting to come out in and throughout your day, you go, oh, Lord, help me. I know I'm being displeasing to you right now. Help me. Give me the strength that I need. A readiness to pray. Next, we see letter B, a devotion and alertness. That's your blank there on letter B. Alertness in prayer. An aid to a life dependent upon prayer includes a readiness and a devotion and alertness in prayer. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And we're oftentimes simply too self-reliant. We think we can navigate our days on our own strength and our own ways and being drifted and, and pulled by our own desires. And we need to have an, a, a devotion and an alertness to pray. We need to be dependent upon God. We need to be spiritually des desperate. As Psalm 42, 1, we see, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you. We need to cultivate a heart and, an, and, a, and a, a desire for God that we're thirsting for him. We're devoted to him. That we're, there's an alertness to recognize the spiritual things taking place throughout the practical earthly things that are unfolding throughout our day. And we need to recognize that we need God's power. We need his grace. We need his strength every day as we see, saw in Colossians 1. We need God's wisdom to walk worthy. We need his help. And so we're devoted and we're alert in our prayer. And then letter C, the next aid to a life dependent upon prayer is submissiveness and surrender. That's your next blank under aids to a life dependent upon prayer. The first one was alertness under B. That was your first blank in this outline. And the next one is surrender, submissiveness and surrender <laughs> under letter C, surrender. Prayer that is consistent with what you know about God and his will. It's the not my will, but your will be done. It's prayer that seeks to be obedient to what God says. This is a yieldedness to the Lord, a humbling yourself under him, particularly a yieldedness to the Holy Spirit and what he is doing in you and through you. It's a call to humble yourself under God that you would not be selfish in your prayer. It's not a prayer that lords yourself over God. It's rather a prayer that seeks to honor God. You cannot pray in the spirit and be submissive if you become stubborn against the truth. It's a heart that is tender to the word of God, right? Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. There is a submissiveness, a, a, a humbling submission and surrender under God and his lordship. God wants our pride crushed. He wants us to come under him. He wants us to be dependent upon him. And listen, I, I just want to remind you of what I said earlier. As you're seeking to cultivate these aids, you don't have to be all of these before you pray. Sometimes God's greatest means is using his word in the believer's heart as they come to him in prayer to cultivate these things. I can't pray right now. I'm just not in a place of submission to the Lord. If you're not in a place of submission to the Lord, probably the greatest thing you need in that moment is to come to the Lord in prayer. 
praying that he would make you submissive to him. But if you never give thought that you need to be, that's a problem. But if your heart disposition, if you have trained yourself in the good times of the reality that you must submissively come to the Lord and surrender, then in the hard times when your heart is heart, God will love to use his spirit working in you to buoy you to that truth that you would come before him and ask him to bring you to that spot. This is the kind of thing. My heart's not in a right place. I'm not going to read my Bible. You ever felt that way? Man, I'm just, I'm just hard towards the truth right now. I've been walking in disobedience. I've got I've to take care of my heart before I read my Bible. I'm not even a good place to read my Bible right now. That's the time when you need God's word the most. <laughs> That's what he loves to use. He loves to use his word. He loves to use prayer and fellowship to cultivate these things in you. So don't feel as if you've got to go do all of these things to get yourself to a point to where you can pray. Pursue these things in your prayer and there will be a growing scale of these things as you do so. And then lastly here, in aids to a life dependent upon prayer, uh, and this one is especially key, it's, it's a concern for that which is spiritual, a spiritual concern. Concern is your blank there. The predominant, predominant flow of our hearts in our prayer is for things which are of spiritual concern. We must con- cultivate a concern for, for what really matters. If all we do is pray for health, And all we do is pray for a good day. And all we pray for is success in our jobs. And all we pray for is success in our children. If all we do are those types of prayers, we're missing out. Our prayers are incomplete. The predominant tone of our prayers should be that of which is a spiritual concern. That's not that we can't pray that children would do well and that our days would go well and that we would remain healthy. Those are not bad prayers. But if that is all for which you are praying, it's incomplete. And in fact, if that's the overarching theme of your prayers, then it is not good. The overarching theme of your prayer should be that for which is of spiritual concern, because God promises us nothing more than what we need to be able to live on this earth. But he promises everything that we need to be able to bring glory to him on this earth. And so we pray with a spiritual concern. This is a, a, a prayer with a concern for others to stand complete in Christ. This is what Paul talks about. Why he labors is that every man would become complete in Christ or mature in Christ. It's to pray with the same intensity as Paul demonstrated in Colossians 2, where he says he struggles on behalf of the Colossian believers, desiring earnestly for them to be encouraged and knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. We don't always pray for relief from trial, but how we can grow through it. How do you pray for friends in trials? Listen, this is, this is a tough one. We have had tremendous trials in this church over the last year. Particularly as it relates to physical ailments. And we currently are going through, have those going through tremendous physical trials. How do you pray for those people? How should we pray for those people? If God uses trials to produce Christ's likeness, here's the question. Should we pray for relief from those trials? When is it right to pray for healing from sickness or hardship? Things like that. And listen, I want to make it very clear. It is good and right and pleasing to the Lord to pray for physical relief from trials. And we should accompany those prayers with And help them to persevere and help them to stand fast and help them to be pleasing to you 
And whatever the outcome, make your son glorified in and through their lives. And thank you that even though I don't see everything, you are still good. And God, you are still faithful. And so you pray and you present your requests and you plead with God in tears as David did for his son to not die in his sickness. And yet you say, not my will be done, but your will be done. Listen, Jesus prayed for relief from trial. Take this cup from me. If there's any other way. But then, not my will, but yours. There was a yieldedness. There was a surrender. There was a submissiveness. All while presenting his request. God loves to answer the prayer of his people. Sometimes the way he gets more glory is by miraculously healing people. And he does that. And sometimes the way that he gets most glory is by not physically healing people and catapulting people in their spiritual maturity as they persevere through trial. So we should Present our requests to God, humbly, submissively, trusting in his will. I know one of the ways when God, I guess, revealed this truth to me most clearly as I was pondering his word was, um, I, I think some of you know, some of you may not know, uh, several years ago now, Julie, my wife, and I, we, uh, we have four children, and in between our third and our fourth, we lost one um, in pregnancy. She was 17 weeks along. And uh, we were vacationing and she started to bleed and we kind of could tell it was coming. She knew it was coming. We went and had an ultrasound on a Friday night and having had, he, he was our fourth child. We know where the heart chamber is on the ultrasound. They put the thing on her belly and immediately we knew that there's no heartbeat. And all of our plans and all of our ideas and all of our thoughts and dreams for that child were uh, immediately surrendered to God's plan for that child. And so we went home and we cried and we cried some more and then we went to sleep and then we woke up and we cried some more and Julie was reading in, in the Psalms and it, it, God's ways are good, all his ways are just, he does all that he pleases, he sits on his throne. She was reading that passage and um, I'm going to change our daughter's diaper and Julie goes to the restroom and she goes, Josh, come here, or Josh, we need to go to the hospital. Then it's, Josh, come here, don't bring the kids and I open up the bathroom door and she's holding our son in our hand. She birthed him in our bathroom. And uh, I burst into tears. She burst into tears. We're bawling. It was the most helpless I've ever felt. There's been lots of times when I didn't know what decision to make. This was the time when I, I didn't even know what the decisions were and were heartbroken. And so um, I collected myself, hugged my wife, got a Tupperware container, put a towel in it, took our son to the hospital. And we had to go through all the things that you usually go through, going to the hospital, ultrasounds, but no child, um, you know, by God's kindness to us, we got to spend the day with Aiden, um, Aiden's body in the in the hospital, and then we went home the next day, and but went home just two of us, not th three of us, like we had hoped. And as we were just working through those things and praying, um, God taught us how to mourn worshipfully, and how to be sad, and how to be heartbroken. And how to trust. And the great truth that resonated in our hearts as we went through all of this together was the fact that if I was a believing Jew or, or a Gentile at the foot of the cross, I would have had no, no category for the death of my Savior being something that God could use for good. Every hope and every dream for the people of Israel would have been crushed in that moment where the crucified Savior was hanging on the cross. And yet God used the most sinful, heinous, tr just tremendously horrific act ever to bring about the salvation of all who would believe. 
And as we pondered that reality of the gospel, what we found was a great comfort knowing that if we can trust and entrust our eternity to God because of the death of his son, how much more can we trust God with the death of our son, even though we don't know why? And even though we don't understand, and even though we can't make sense of these things in the here of now, what we can make sense of is that God is faithful and he's good. And whatever trial, whatever struggle, whatever sickness, whatever ailment, whatever hardship, whatever broken relationship that you may find yourself in, that circumstance is not Lord over God. God is Lord over that circumstance. And so we can trust him. We can submit ourselves to him. Now, as we wrap up, we're just going to briefly address prayer and the disciplines. And hopefully a lot of these uh, lines have already been drawn in your heart as we consider prayer in our heart and prayer in our home and prayer in our ministry. Prayer just needs to be a part of the, of the Christian's life. Jesus oftentimes slipped away to pray, Luke 5, 16. And if Jesus made intentional, undistracted time for prayer, we should also. And yet the discipline of shepherding your heart with prayer is not confined to a 15, 5, 30 hour long time in the morning. Our disposition and our shepherding of our hearts in prayer should be something where there is a consistent readiness to be able to pray at all times and an alertness to do so as needed. And then also, as we consider prayer and, and the things that we're to pray for and how God loves to use prayer, what better thing could we do for those in our home than to beseech the only one who ultimately has power to do anything in the lives of those around us? You cannot change anybody in your home, but God can. And so what better thing to do in our care for our homes than to faithfully and intentionally and thoughtfully pray for those around us? And the same is true for ministry. What better thing could you do for those in your small group, for those in your wellspring group, for your elders, for the women who labor so diligently to teach you in wellspring? What better thing could you do than to pray and thank and bring petitions to God for them? Prayer needs to be an integral part to the believer's life. And prayer is something that should just weave itself in and out and all through our own hearts, our care for those around us in our homes and our care for those in the body of Christ. We need to be a praying people. And lastly, I just want to draw attention to something that I have for you there in your outline in the appendix. And this is just a resource. If you're trying to find, okay, this is really overwhelming. This is a lot. It's going to take some time to practice, to, to process I feel kind of convicted and encouraged and overwhelmed. And wait, where do I start again? Well, here's a place to start, okay? Um, a couple things. You can do this, go back through Colossians and start looking at the outline of what Paul thinks for and just start looking for those things and those around you and praying those things for you. And in the petitions, petition those things for those around you and petition those things for you. That's a great place to start. And here's another thing. If you just want to practice praying scripture, which has been one of the most significant aids to my personal prayer life, here's an example of how to do so. Look at Colossians, or, or just consider 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. Here's, here's a way that you can pray scripture. As you read a passage, consider what is the promise or truth in this text? Is there one? It, well, in this one, there is. There's some truths or promises. It's that God is faithful. 
that God will not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they're able, that God will provide a way of escape from temptation. You guys all see that in your outline? Are you with me? Great. Okay, good. Um, Now here's the next question to ask. For whom is the promise or truth applicable? Because, right, not every promise or truth is for you. And so there are things that we can pray in regards to promises for for others. You know, if God says that he has a plan for Israel, we can thank God for his faithfulness to care for his people intentionally. Although we can't say that the promises that God makes for Israel are for us as well. So we want to ask ourselves, for whom is this promise made? Or is this truth applicable? Well, in this text, it's written to Corinthians as a truth for believers. This is for all believers. So how might this promise or truth inform my prayers? Well, I can reflect on the reality of God's faithfulness. I can pray that God would not allow me to be tempted beyond that which I can endure. And I can pray that God would provide and that I would take the way of escape when tempted. And so you might pray something like this. God, I'm being tempted. Or God, today, I know there will be temptations. And I know that you are faithful. Would you please allow your faithfulness to abound in my life right now? I know you do not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able. And I plead with you now to help me withstand this temptation. I know there is a way of escape from this temptation. I pray that you would help me to take it. Help me to endure this temptation that I might be pleasing to you and not sin. That's just an example of maybe where to start. If you want to cultivate um, uh, praying scripture into your, if you want to incorporate praying scripture into your prayer life. And then there's some additional passages, some ones that I pray through regularly that might be helpful and, and the, the questions to ask and work through and just some things to consider there. So hopefully that can be a helpful aid for you. Let me close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for creating a means in which we can approach the throne of grace. And that means is your son. Lord, help us to be disciplined in the practice of prayer. Help us to see the preciousness of prayer. Help us to understand, as Oswald Chambers says, that prayer prayer is not a prequel to the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Help us to be prayerful people, dependent people, and help our prayers to be pleasing to you. Help us to ever be growing in these things and help us to experience joy that you desire for your children in a a fruitful, fervent prayer life. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.